Cinderella's slippers weren't originally made of glass. That was a mistranslation. What were they supposed to be made of? Can you name any of the three top best-selling toys of all time? No, no. Did I have any of them? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and there's a lot of it right now, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, take a side road to sanity and just uh, enjoy some trivia. So we've got some interesting questions today. Let's start with yours, the three best-selling toys of all time. It is Christmas, and I'm out there trying to get an unbuyable toy for our son. That Xbox X is not easy to find, I mm, can tell you. Mm-hmm. It's making me crazy. But anyway, so that got me down the rabbit hole of what are the best-selling toys of all time? And I got the top three here. Can you name I would, one I of them? I bet Barbie would be one of them. Number one, ding, ding, ding. Is Barbie. Yeah. Really? For over 50 years, she's been around, and there's been over a billion sold. Wow. And just as a side note, in 2016, they finally added uh, three new body types to that top-heavy type we are used to. And <laughs> well, then... what was wrong with the top-heavy type? <laughs> I thought that was a perfectly good one. You ever see what a real woman would look like? Yes, with that I have. Body? Okay. I have. And then they also added various skin tones. Wow. And so number two is the yo-yo. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. yeah. That was actually invented 2,500 years ago. So it has been around It took a while. A while. It, it took, took a while. <laughs> but it didn't take off until Donald Duncan. That's right. Does that sound familiar? And he was a promoter who kind of, I think it was a Filipino uh, product or a Filipino culture. Yeah, he saw it when he was on a vacation or something. Okay. And around 1928, he uh, bought it from this street guy and bought the rights to it. And then it became Duncan Yo-Yos, and they have sold. And the street vendor he bought it from, he actually hired him to demonstrate it. So he became a partner with him yes, over the years. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. exactly right. And the third. The third top-selling toy. I don't know if you or your sister, probably your sister, but I can see you playing with this. Well, if it was my sister, I'd say Chatty Cathy. Yeah, there was that in the Tiny Tears and all the dolls that had various body functions. G.I. Joe? <laughs> no. Okay, what? No, it was the Easy Bake Oven. Oh, no, no, yeah. I didn't. I thought it was Etch-A-Sketch because that was a good one, it too. It was. These were all but the... So the Easy Bake Oven was the well, third? Yes. Do you have numbers on these? Uh, that one, no, but there were millions. Kids became their own little chef in their own little kitchen in their bedrooms, you know, setting the drapes on fire. <laughs> <laughs> did, did Susie have one? Uh, she may have had an easy bake oven. Yeah, yeah. Is that the one they had like a, it was just like a light bulb in the yeah, back of it? that's exactly yeah, right. I had one. And uh, I'll never forget the taste and the smell. Well, what was the taste and smell like? Not very good. <laughs> <laughs> but the big seller was Barbie Dow. Barbie. And there's been over a billion sold. Think yeah. of that now, thousands of years from now, when they dig through the rubble of what was modern day America, and they yeah. find a billion of these dolls that go, what kind of religious cult was this? <laughs> what you know? did they use these yeah. for? These had tremendous significance. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Okay, another childhood thing is the childhood story of Cinderella. We're all familiar with that. Ah. And how she had those magic glass slippers, which we always wondered, how do you put your foot in a glass slipper, right? Very carefully. But her slippers weren't originally made out of glass. In the original story, what were they made out of? Uh, Nagahide? <laughs> no, no, not Nagahide. Uh, okay, no. well, what? Okay, they were actually made out of 
Fur. Fur. They were fur made out slipper? of fur. Her slippers weren't made out of glass. They were made out of fur. The glass molding technology to make wearable glass slippers, well, that just did not exist in the 17th century. And when researchers were investigating, they found the problem was apparently in the oral tradition of the story. The tale of Cinderella had been told over and over throughout the years by the spoken word, and apparently the French word for fur had in time been corrupted into a similar-sounding word for glass, ver, V-E-R-R-E, ver. And by the time Perrault set the story down in a Mother Goose books, the fur slippers had been transformed into glass slippers, but originally with fur slippers. I'll be darned. Which was still... Something only rich people could have, you know. All right, Bob. Did you know that the word tips, like leaving a tip for a waiter or waitress, was originally an acronym? Yes. It's something. Of course you do. Well, it is. It's something to ensure promptness. To ensure prompt service. There we go. That's tips. Or tip, uh, it also was uh, to ensure promptitude going back to the 17th century. This is all British. Uh, they had little bowls. They had little bowls printed uh, at the coffee houses, and they had it just said to ensure prompt service. You throw your money into the bowl, <laughs> and uh, that's what they did. So uh, then it just became in tips. The, yeah. Speaking of England, I have an English question. <laughs> I got always a lot of English questions. Okay, why did England, that tiny island, lead the world in industrialization? Now, think about it. That's where the Industrial Revolution began. We were there. I saw the first factory. Yeah, yeah. Why did they lead the world? Well, because they had shipping available from, because they were an island? I don't know. The British were not first in line as, as far as explorers were concerned. You know, the Spanish crown, that was the world's greatest power. They focused on treasure, so they were always looking for gold and silver and romantic legends like the Fountain of Youth. Britain, which was a small country, was overrun by sheep. They needed a place to sell their wool and other products. It's true. So it's exploration always focused on trade and colonization. So setting up colonies that would serve as markets and sources of more raw material. The British did that in the Americas, in India, and in Asia, and eventually the focus on global business made London the industrial, economic, social, and cultural capital of the world. It was that by the time of the American Revolution. Okay, Bob. Okay. Currently, what percentage of American households have Amazon Prime. Now, do you mean by that the TV service or the fact that they have quick deliveries? Because that's what Amazon Prime began as. Yeah, that's uh, the same thing. You get the TV service, Amazon Prime, if you have the delivery. Amazon Prime covers both those things. I'd say 33%. Yeah. That, That would be a lot of people. It would. But guess what? What? 82%. You're kidding. No, it went up quite a bit in 2020 because... uh, Of the COVID, yes. Yeah, but roughly 142.5 million households have Amazon Prime. What a success that is for them. Yeah, it is. Isn't that amazing? And okay, here's my second one, sort of a related question. Why are shopping centers called malls? Why are they called malls? Well, there were always... Weren't malls terms for shopping areas in major cities back in centuries ago? Well. Like in Belgium and France and in uh, Holland and uh, in, in England? Weren't no. there malls? No. no. no? But it's okay. not that far off. Shopping centers mushroomed in the 1950s but weren't called malls until 1967. It comes from the popular 16th century Italian ball and mallet game, Palamaglio. Hmm. which came to England as Pall Mall, pronounced Pell Mell. 
But the 18th century, by the 18th century, the game had been forgotten except on the name of a London street where it was played and on a parallel ritzy avenue named The Mall, where fashionable aristocrats strolled and shopped. So the street was called The The Mall. Mall. And then 1967. That name was attached to shopping centers. Yeah. I'll be darned. And now it's Amazon Prime. And a a mall (laughs) generally is always an enclosed place. A mall means an enclosed shopping structure versus an open-air one, which like a strip mall or some of the other terms, they're hybrids now, of course. I've got a, an art question. You're the art uh, critic and art expert in our family. Oh, yes. <laughs> Bring it on, baby. <laughs> okay, so this is one of your famous impressionists, all right? What famous artist studied you law? You mean you can do Humphrey Bogart? <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. okay, baby, come here. It's what famous artist? I, I married an impressionist. Okay, what famous <laughs> artist studied law and worked as a law clerk? Obviously, you don't know this person for that. Became a famous artist. But he originally was going to be a lawyer. Okay, I'll just say. I'll um, give you his first name, Henri <laughs> Matisse. That's it. <laughs> yeah, one of the great artists of the 20th century, known for his artistic mastery, right? Yeah, he was lovely. He was originally going to be a lawyer. He studied the law, he passed the bar, and worked as a clerk in a law firm, but he attended drawing classes in the morning before going to work. Oh, really? And his father wanted Henri, his eldest child, to take over the family grain business, but he wasn't interested in that either. <laughs> what do you think got him interested? Uh what triggered his interest in art? It I'll was say a, flowers. It was Are a, they a basis of beautiful flowers? No, it and was a medical. Fruit, lots of fruit. <laughs> trying, to give you, trying to give you hints here, Marsh. You always say I don't fruit. give you hints. Okay, yeah, the, the hints help. It was a medical condition. Oh, got me. Appendicitis. His mother helped trigger his passion during his recovery from appendicitis surgery in his youth. Well, that's... He had months of confinement in bed for his long recovery, and that bored him. So his mother gave him a paint box to lift his spirits. It triggered his passion for art, and so he tried to go into law, but he left that job. He defied his father's wish to take over the family grain business, and he moved to Paris to pursue art. And we all benefit. And he did his last work. Matisse did his last work in 1954. So he lived a long time. I'll say. Yeah. He did a circular stained glass window commissioned by Nelson Rockefeller, and it's still in the Union Church of Terrytown, New York. I've been to Terrytown. But you didn't know that it was appendicitis that caused Henri Matisse to want to be an artiste. <laughs> you are so continental, Bob. Oh, thank you so much. All right. You ready for this, bud? I think so. How did a partially eaten pizza inspire the arcade revolution of the 1980s? Really? A partially eaten pizza inspired yeah. like Pac-Man and all those things? Oh, that's exactly what inspired it. Now really? think about it. All because so, now, Pac-Man's eating another thing. Yeah, <laughs> but picture a pizza now. Yeah. And the guy ate two pieces of pizza out of it. What does the pizza look like with two missing pizzas? Pac-Man. That's yeah. right. It looks like a mouth opening and I'll closing. I'll be darned. I didn't so, know that. Tell so, me the story, Mike. So Pac-Man creator... Toru Awatani was 27 and working for a Japanese video game company. And he had a pizza one day and he was looking at it while he was eating and it was missing two slices. Mm -hmm. And uh, he thought it resembled a mouth. According to him, that was the inspiration for the game that ate its way through untold quarters and single-handedly ignited the arcade revolution of the 1980s. Pac-Man. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's where he got the idea for that clever little icon. So you never know where an inspiration for something's going to come from. And it came from food. 
Pac-Man yeah. came from food. Yeah. Okay, I have a question about food. Uh-huh. What famous dessert owes its inspiration to the Chicago World's Fair of 1893? What happened at it that It was a last-minute thing that somebody put together. I'll give you a hint. It's a famous <laughs> hotel. Oh, okay. That Okay, Brandy Alexander. No, that's not a dessert. Uh, let's see. The dessert. Uh, the dessert is not named after the hotel, but it no, it's came named out of a after the hotel. chef. No? no. Okay. Uh, Something very basic. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think I know this, but I can't think of it. Go ahead. I'll tell you who came up with it. Okay. Bertha Palmer, who oh. was the wife of the Bertha. Palmer House Hotel yeah. owner Potter Palmer. Potter Palmer. She found herself in the middle of a dessert dilemma in 1893. She was headed to the World's Fair Columbian Exposition in Chicago with her squad. She needed a portable pastry that would please the ladies she was going to have there with her. They were going to boxed lunch with her there. So she asked the hotel's pastry chef for help, and he came up with something. Was it a cream puff? Nope. It's a cake-like square with walnuts and apricot glaze called fudge brownies. What? Fudge brownies were invented at the Palmer House Hotel. The term brownie came later. The first known printed use of the word was in the Boston Cooking School book three years later in 1896 by Fanny Farmer. But the Palmer House still bakes up batches using the original recipe from its restaurant. So the huh. fudge brownies were a last-minute thing that the wife of the hotel owner wanted to take to give to her friends at the fair. I'll be Well, I was wrong. I didn't know that. Three other famous eating items were also introduced at the World's Fair in 1893. Can you name them? No. One is from Milwaukee. Uh, a certain kind of beer. Oh, really? Was it Schlitz? No, Pabst. Pabst. One was a type of popcorn that was coated with caramel. Okay, caramel corn. Cracker Jacks. Oh, really? And one was cream of wheat. From yeah. North Dakota. North Dakota contributed cream of wheat. Those those three things were introduced at the World's Fair, along with fudge brownies. Huh. So we had some good things come out of that fair. In 1930, Bob, United Airlines originated stewardess service. What specific kind of women were chosen for the job? What specific type of women were chosen yes, for the job? type of woman. They were the first stewardesses ever in the air. Were they singers or dancers? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah. There, there was there was a time when there were entertainers they hired for f- flights. Yeah. the first airline yeah, flights. No. This is a this is a year after Amelia Earhart flew across the Atlantic, and uh, then they decided, hey, let's put women on the airplanes. But they all were one kind of person. What were they? They were all registered nurses. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, that eight, makes sense. Eight registered nurses were hired for planes on the Chicago to San Francisco route. Why nurses? Cabins were not pressurized. Flying was routinely rough and passengers were frequently stressed out or sick. In those days, <laughs> stewardesses were encouraged to slap a hysterical or hyperventilating flyer. <laughs> <laughs> just just slap them. You need an RN for that. Yeah. Now nowadays they have to do that if you're not well, wearing so, your mask. Slap them in a medical way. Yeah. <laughs> Something that's interesting it's related to that, you know. So you're talking about the first attendants on a plane other than the flight crew, meaning other than the pilot who is steering the plane, right? You've got a medical person. Interestingly enough, I'm reading the Mayflower book again by uh, Philbrook about the pilgrims. Yeah. And he talks about how ships were these great big high-tech 
divisions of labor. You had the people dealing with the sails. You had the people who were steering. You had the people in charge of the freight. You had the captain. And you also had a surgeon on every boat that went out back in the 1600s. Surgeon was very important because people would get sick and so forth. So there's always a medical person on board. And here, this is like the same kind of tradition three or 400 years later on airplanes. So there's so so many similarities here. Oh, yeah. Okay, gotcha. You have a medical professional. You have a pilot who's in charge. Quite interesting. All right, Bob. You probably know uh, what the oldest ancient artifacts would be. What do you think? Well, the oldest ancient artifacts would be stone tools, probably. That's Uh That's the answer. But how old are the oldest ancient artifacts, these tools? I think they only date things back about 10,000 years. Or maybe, no, no, maybe, no. I'm thinking of, no, no, I was thinking of... uh, I, I'm thinking of things like uh, the stuff they found down in New Mexico. Those were about 35,000 years ago, I think. So what's your answer? Uh, about 35,000 years. That that these tools. Back. Yeah. Oh, nay, nay, Bob. Okay, tell nay, me. Nay, nay. They found stone tools. Now, try to wrap your head around this. From 3.3 million years ago. Oh, my they were, goodness. They were found in Kenya, and it predates Homo sapiens. Oh, really? Say, what? Which means our ancestors had the mental ability to craft tools before any member of the Homo sapiens was even born. Artifacts they found included anvil, cone, and flakes. I don't know what a flake is, but anyway, that's... uh... You said (laughs) cornflakes? All right, let's just take a moment and take a break. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob... And Marsha. Smith. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we're back. All right, Bob, let's get serious. I'm serious. How long is the longest handmade egg noodle? <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> Where do you get these things? I, it's my private this place. This must be the <laughs> your private place. Is that the Guinness Book of World Records? Maybe. Okay, so we're going... Actually, that one's not. Oh, Okay, is this one of those ridiculous things where the longest handmade noodles is two miles in length or something like that? No. Okay. You want to just get it's it, give me it in feet? Okay, 100 foot. Okay. Uh, 602 feet long. Jeez. Japanese chef Hiroshi Kuroda created an egg noodle that's 602 feet long, about the same as the Seattle Space Needle. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and that single strand noodle took an hour of cooking in a very large wok. So he uh, he cooked it and he he made it by hand. And then put it in a hot walk. I would take a long walk after I did that, too. <laughs> Think about it. Long as the space needle. That is amazing. Yes. I wonder how many people ate on that. Well, okay. Go ahead. But, you know, something like that doesn't last as long as the space needle. That's, the, <laughs> that's why it's not that significant in my mind. <laughs> All right, Bob. What bird is considered the strongest bird of prey? The American eagle, the bald eagle. It's the female harpy eagle. Hmm. And uh, she weighs in around 10 pounds, but's capable of hunting animals equal or superior in size, like up to 20 pounds she can bring in. Isn't that amazing? She brings in uh, howler monkeys and sloths. Her talons are five inches long. Monkeys? Where is this bird? Oh, she lives in southern Mexico and can be found all the way down to northern Argentina. Wow. So, uh, is so it, uh, I have to ask a politically incorrect question. Wasn't harpy a term they used to talk about well, women that were too strident? That, that She's did, pretty harpy. That did occur to me, yes. <laughs> I shouldn't and, say that. And you know my nails do get very long. <laughs> so just watch what you say over there, bud. Oh, my God. 
All right. Okay, it's not the egg noodle question, but it's of significance. That's pretty good. Mighty female eagle. This is related to one of my earlier questions, but uh, you probably don't know the answer to this. (laughs) Don't be surprised. What is unusual about the original Mother Goose? Well, you give me a little hint here. Yeah. Mrs. Elizabeth Goose. What was unusual about her? She didn't exist. (laughs) Oh. The the original Mother Goose was a man, a Frenchman named Charles Perrault. He lived from 1628 to 1703. Mother Goose was a guy. Yeah. You're crushing my soul here, He wrote the tales of Mother Goose that came in 1697. All the stories were not just French fairy tales. They were European stories that had been told for centuries and uh, included the stories of Cinderella, Puss in Boots, Bluebird, Sleeping Beauty, Tom Thumb, and Little Red Riding Hood. Those were all first published in that book. Ah. But they, had, they were centuries old, published by this uh, guy who claimed to be Mother Goose. So <laughs> that was funny. Some of those I, stories also are similar to Swahili and Hindu tales. So the fairy tales are universal from around the world. We don't think of global books, but that yeah, was a global those, book back then. They really were. Yeah. Huh. And so... Mother was a father. Yeah, mother was a father, yeah. Huh, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> okay, 1963, Bob. Every third tube of toothpaste in the United States that was sold was Crest. Why? Every third tube of toothpaste was Crest. Well, they had a terrific marketing. Uh, they did all those uh, competitions on seeing who had fewer cavities. They look, did that Mom, all over no the country. Cavities. Yeah, look, Mom, that, no cavities. Yeah, that was a famous line. Actually, the original ads, which only people of a certain age would remember, they had like huge teams of people, 30 or 40 people, and they said, our group had so many fewer yeah, cavities yeah. with Crest. So I would assume that's why. But Why? Why did they have fewer cavities? Because they had fluoride in That's the toothpaste. That's it. They were the first oh. to adopt fluoride. And this follows the huge controversy in the 50s. Oh, remember, I remember about that. fluoride in the water? And scientists said it was proven to fight tooth decay and be good for your teeth. But the, Some people said it was a communist plot. It was plot. a communist plot. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't <laughs> it? Okay, so the scientists uh, uh, won out. And uh, um, I love this part. So, Chris, uh, this was their motto. <laughs> And they put it on every tube, and it ran on TV, and everybody heard it a million times. This was it. Crest has been shown to be an effective decay preventive dentifrice that can be significant value when used in a, in a conscientiously a applied oral program. That was in all of their commercials. Yes, and on their tube of toothpaste, that ridiculously long and other, tag. other When other uh, manufacturers started doing that, they insisted, I want that on my toothpaste tube, too. And so all of the toothpaste brands eventually had that on there because Crest had it first. They had that long description. Could you read it again? I'd love to, Bob. Crest has been shown to be an effective decay preventive dentifrice. Preventive dentifrice. Yes, that can be of significant value when used in a conscientiously applied program of oral hygiene and regular professional care. Yep. I mean, that just rolls off the tongue. Well, actually, a lot of us memorized (laughs) it. Well, apparently, you were listening more than I was. That was even used in, uh, well, here, take a listen to this. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to you from a typical American home in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Since January of 1960, this family of smiling and happy people have undergone a change. You might say they've been engaged in a new and different type of experiment. Sir, as head of this average family, what was this new experience undergone by you and the members of your household? Well, after uh, two years of brushing with the Crest toothpaste, our group... (laughs) 
Our group had uh, 21% fewer cavities with Crest. That is from the first family albums from like 1962 where they played JFK. And this yeah, is, yeah. That was just the joke was that, oh, the president would say something like well, that. What's his name? That comedian? Von Meter. Von Meter. Von Meter, yeah. Very good. Okay, speaking of presidents, what was John Adams' prized pet? <sighs> Abigail. No, it, she was a prize. <laughs> John yeah. Quincy Adams, actually, I'm talking about. This oh, was his son. That's a whole different uh, uh He was an animal president. lover. Okay, his prize pet, I don't know, was a goat. Not a dog, not a cat, not a goat. What? Well, swamp reptile. <laughs> An alligator? A full-grown alligator, which was given to him by the French military officer, Marquis de Lafayette. He kept a full-grown alligator in the White House bathtub, and he showed it off to any guests brave enough to pay him a visit. That poor <laughs> animal just lived in the bathtub? Well, for a while. Who knows Jeez, how long it that's lasted. cruel. Okay, now Thomas Jefferson, he didn't have a pet like that, but he did have something that had been uh, an animal. What did he bring to the White House? Tell me. He had the bones of a mastodon shipped to the White House, and he attempted to construct a full skeleton for display. <laughs> oh, these presidents and their hobbies. <laughs> I thought those were pretty interesting. They are. All, All right. right. You got something to wrap things up with? I do. I, I've got... Uh, okay, I'll finish up with three more bumper stickers, okay? All right. I childproofed my house, but they still got in. <laughs> <laughs> and here's one from me to you. If you want breakfast in bed, sleep in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, last time you get coffee in the morning. And oh, I bring I up teasing. the coffee in the newspaper, but it's no more. Odd. New, new, new. <laughs> Let me finish up with one more. Okay. My favorite. Okay. <laughs> Women who seek equality with men lack ambition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a mean thing to say. Well, okay. All right. Thank that, you. That's my bumper stickers for now and always. Okay. How can I miss you if you won't go away? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's almost like, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's it for today. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time. On the off-ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.